Welcome to In Search of the Mind of God. We invite you to search with us the mind of God. When searching His Word, we can always be sure of our salvation will not be used on man's ideas or false feelings. It will never be our purpose to promote any denominational doctrine of any religious group. Man is fallible. God is not. This program is brought to you by the Port St. Lucie Church of Christ. We are located at 384 East Midway Road here in White City, Florida. This program contains previous recordings from Joe Wilson, who graduated from this life in 2018. We invite you to join us for worship. Personal Bible study is available, and we propose to know nothing among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. times that something simple becomes the common thing that can cause our memories to be stirred. When we study the prodigal son, it is often when we sin and are in peril that the hardened heart is awakened. There's a lot of people that don't understand that we in sin are hypnotized. And hypnotized causes us to not be ourselves. And as sometimes small signs along the way can bring us back to consciousness. There's where we see the prodigal son. Self-willed, self-indulgent. We're at the point where we're ready to give up on God. When suddenly a simple phrase arrests our attention and brings us back to ourselves. In the book of Luke, the 15th chapter and the 17th verse, one of the strongest passages of Scripture is given. And he came to himself. Then, in the years of ruin, he was not himself, was he? If he came to himself when he was in the land in famine and starvation, had gone from his father's house and had taken the money that was given him, he was really not himself. The prodigal was not the real man. It was not the real person who had hurt and wasted and destroyed himself and brought shame and disgrace to his family. But the prodigal was the one who was in active disobedience to God's law and had gotten to a place to where nothing else could do him any good. He'd taken the money that his daddy had given him. That was a part of his inheritance. He'd gone to a strange country, and he went amongst strange people. And when he went amongst these strange people, he wasted his goods in riotous living. He didn't live according to that which had been taught him as he was raised as a child. He didn't live according to the decency and the standards that God had determined. He decided that he was going to let it all happen. And he was going to enjoy the life that everybody else has talked about that he'd never been a participant in. And as he got into this situation, 
and found himself in this kind of predicament. All the money that he had bestowed upon his friends that they had borrowed from him and never would ever repay, all the food that he'd bought, all maybe the liquor that he had given them freely when, they would buy, when he would buy the rounds at the table, everything that he had was gone. And when he looked around, he was all by himself. The prodigal was not the real man. He had depended on everybody but God. Does God forgive so quickly because he knows who the real man is? I've often been in a lot of situations where people have seen men like the prodigal son return and they want to know why that they can be so easily forgiven. And I always ask myself the question, because God knows who the real man is. And that reason causes him to forgive so quickly. You see, God sees more than us, than we see in ourselves. I keep telling this. I keep mentioning it to people. Sin is lunacy. A person is mad who takes a chance on losing his soul. You can't be in your right mind and be in a position to where you overcome what you've been taught all your life and give up on it so easily as not to do what God has commanded. There are people that we've known for years who act the opposite that they have always acted and we try to let on like that these people need to be covered up for, made a, an excuse for. But when we recognize that a man is more than the actions of his present life, we need to realize that there's a lot of times that God knows the heart that we don't understand. How simple. Then sometimes a common phrase or a common word, or an act that was not even meant to be religious can bring this man back to himself, and he's so easily forgiven. So when he came to himself, for the first time, he literally looked into the mirror, and he didn't like what he saw. And then he made a comparison. A lot of times that, that a lot of people don't pay any attention to. Why? What am I doing here starving to death? What am I doing to find that I am not obedient to the law of God? What am I doing because my father hath in his house servants, and these servants have plenty. And not only do they have plenty, but they got some to spare. And I'm sitting here starved to death. For in verse 15, 14, when he had spent all, there arose a great famine in that land, and he began to be in want. I think a lot of times we overlook the providence of God. I think that a lot of times we don't understand it when we see it, and he hits us right in the face. 
There are times when God seeks to bring his children back home. And he does it through a means that only God knows. And after we have seen this life brought back to obedience to God, we wonder, was that by the plan of God? You think this famine was coincidence, do you? You think that God had not stretched out his hand to a child that was wondering in insanity? That all of his life had lived according to the law of God and in the favor of his father? And that had found himself in starvation and at the point of death? Do you think the famine just happened? Ah, oh, my friend, there is no possible way that you and I can understand the providence of God unless we understand his love. There's a lot of times that people want to do wrong. They intend to live a life that they had never, ever been taught to live. And there might be an incident or a person or a thing or maybe even a word that's uttered that will shock them back into recognition of who they are and what they had. Ah, oh, there's a person that I used to try to help, couldn't do her a lot of good, that every time she'd get in trouble, I'd say, you got to remember three things. I'm saved, I'm loved, and somebody loves me. Now, you can think about this all you want to. But in the world in which we live, these are the three happiest conclusions that you could ever reach. Somebody actually cares. That's the reason God sent his son to this world that he might purchase the church, that we might have freedom from sin. God wanted to show man what love could do. And he wanted to let him know that somebody cared for his estate. Man had wandered so far away and was estranged from the love of God that there was no possible way that anybody could think that God owed him anything. Now look at this prodigal son. What did his father owe him? He didn't owe him a kind word. He sure didn't owe him any money. And he surely didn't know him the benefit of the doubt. To be as heinous as he had been with that which his father had supplied him and he'd gone to this place and he'd lived so recklessly and so foolishly as not to be able to deserve even a kind word from his father. There's one thing that this young man recognized when he came to himself that a lot of people don't. I'm saved. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, has cleansed me from my sin. You can have whatever else you want to in life. You can figure out how everything else is going wrong. You can think that you're the only one that's ever had this kind of problem. But you've got to keep in memory that were it not for the grace of God, you too would not know the gospel of Christ. And what great favor and what great blessing God has bestowed upon every one of us that are here this day and those that are in the sound of our voice 
if they're members of the body of Christ, to know that we know what to do to be saved. We know that we've obeyed it. We remember the day that we were buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in the newness of life. And not all the devils in hell are the imps from that infernal region can take that from our minds. Somewhere, sometime, and in some place, I'm saved. Another thing. You notice in a strange way that the story of this prodigal son kind of brings you and I into recognition of ourselves. How do we know the condition and the situation this man was in? He didn't have a text tell. He didn't have a phone service. He didn't have a computer that he could send an email. How did we know these events took place? Somebody was either following him, somebody was watching him, or somebody was reporting. How do we know the situation that this young man was in? A lot of people think that his younger, this younger boy had his older brother watching him and was comparing himself by himself. And you know the Bible says they that compare themselves with themselves are not wise. Or that the older son was looking at the younger son and saying, yeah, you're going to finally get your comeuppance. Yeah, this is your day. But how do we know but that the glove of God was not looking down from the portals of glory upon a person who was not himself, who was concerned with his continuous salvation and had not made any steps to try to be obedient to God. Yet God was standing there holding his hand of love and benevolence out to this young man and offering him that one final opportunity to come to himself. Why, he said, this is crazy. I'm starving to death. I'm working for some Gentile that doesn't respect who I am at all. I've wasted all my money and nobody's going to ever pay me back. I don't even have a bite to eat and I can't eat the husk from the corn that I've fed the swine. Why, I've got a father that's got servants that fare better than this. They have food and to spare. And there's one thing about his father that he recognized that a lot of times people don't know. And that is God is love. You see, he recognized that if he could get within the area that his father was in, he could be saved. Out often by himself and amongst strangers without friends, nobody would help him. It would be just like the Good Samaritan. Here came this Jew all proud of himself because he thought he was a child of Abraham coming down from the road from Jerusalem, and he saw this uh, other Jew laying over there, been beaten and almost killed, and he just walks over to the other side of the street, goes on down the road. What about his care for his fellow man? What about his care for his kindred? What about his care for somebody that was harmed or hurt? Didn't seem to be any. But then when he thought of God as recognized by the Father, 
When the father would get in a close place that he could help or would help. When he could get down, you know, he didn't know, and a lot of times the world doesn't know, but that God is watching over his children. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. You hear that? The eyes, First Peter 3, 12. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. And his ears are open unto their prayers. Oh, there's always somebody watching, whether we realize it or not, who loves us. And when he watches and loves us, there's times that he, because of his great love, extends himself in a providential manner that will allow us to come to ourselves. Now, we may not recognize and appreciate the way it's done. We not, may not like to have to go through the starvation. We may not have to go and want to be without and we may not be, want to be rejected, even though we were the ones that participated in making these events come to existence. But when we get so down and out, when there's no friends that are around that'll come to go your bail, when there's no help in sight that will cause you to ever be able to be relieved from the situation in which you find yourselves, as the old song says, when I'm down and out, when in fear I shout, there's got to be a great day. God will come to the rescue. Oh, it may be that his servants may have rejected and refused him. It may be that they've gone to a far country. It may be that they are starving to death and don't even know why. But the Lord's hand is still over the righteous and his ears open to their prayers. I think a lot of times of Jonah in the belly of the whale. That'd be about as bad as you could get, right? Old Jonah had run from the Lord, and Jonah found himself thrown overboard. And when Jonah found himself overboard, he found himself swallowed by a whale. Now tell me, folks, how could he go to God and say help? Have you ever been in a situation where you've been in sin, you've committed sin, you've done, you know exactly what God didn't want you to do. You knew that you were lost and undone. How do you have the unmitigated gall and the nerve and the courage to go to God and ask for help? I can tell you how. Are you listening? And I'm going to be spending the whole time on this one phrase. You come to yourself. I'm saved, and I know that I am. I've been bought by the blood of Christ. There's an intrinsic value and an intrinsic worth in me that is not in man that's not been baptized into Christ for the remission of sins. Oh, I know the world makes so much fun of being baptized. But friend, when you meet the blood of Christ, when the blood of God's own Son cuts the sin loose from your soul, then your value on the stock market of heaven has shot to sky heavens. You are worth what God has paid. And had you not been worth it, he would not have paid that price. 
And since you are worth what God has paid, and since God is your Father, and since God loves you, and you have then again turned and rejected and refused to be obedient to him, when everything else is over and done, when there is no help in sight, when there's no one that will come to help you in any aspect or any way, if there's nothing else you can claim, even though you're dying of starvation, is the love of God. I'm saved. I'm bought. I'm forgiven of sin. I have a father in heaven who loves me and gave his son for me. I have a means available at my disposal. I just not been it myself. I, I've been in lunacy. I'm crazy to try to go beyond the realms of the providence of God. And when he came to himself, he recognized that as a man, he was more than his failures. All at the privilege and the opportunity of knowing you're better than what you think you are. We judge a lot of times people as a failure because of what they've lived. But we don't see man as God sees his children. We look at ourselves in despair and depravity and think, well, you know, how in the world? And, and, and I've often been in that situation. I do things that are so wrong that I know that are just absolutely against the law of God. And then when I finally reckon where I am in relationship to God, I don't almost have the guts or the intestinal fortitude to turn in repentance and go to God for help. Now, how smart is that? There's this little boy that was out playing in the sand pit one day. And he had his road all built. You know how we used to do. That's when they played with cars that you could go through the sand pits. And I, I was out there and I was playing in the sand pit. And there was this big old boulder in the way. And it wasn't any way I could make it to where my car could get through and get around that boulder. And as a child, you know, I got frustrated and I began to cry and scream. And I looked around and standing behind me was my father. And I looked at him and I said, what are you doing standing there not moving this rock? Well, you know how sometimes our people jump on the help they've got instead of asking for it. You know how people are. They just don't recognize the situation they're in. Here he stood and there I was, and there was that big boulder, and it was in my way. And I was so frustrated, I didn't want to worry about eating, I didn't worry about sleep, I didn't worry about anything. I wanted to get my car around that, and I couldn't move it. He reached down and picked up the big rock and moved it, and he said, all you had to do was ask. I'd been standing here watching all the time. I read that later, that somebody wrote that story, and I just wondered if they had written that about something that had happened in my life. And a lot of times people don't really realize that God is standing around waiting to be asked. Oh, does he come with a system of anger? Does he come back and treat us as though we shouldn't have any blessings? Does he act as though that we are so, uh, he's, we've made him so mad that he's going to shun any favor that is ours? 
when we know the love of God and the situation that we can find ourselves in because of sin or because of poverty may not be brought about by sin or because of disease that may not be brought about by poverty or sin. Do we refuse and refrain from asking for the only help that really can help? Again, you think the famine was a coincidence? You think that things can come into your life that don't teach you valuable lessons that may not have come by the plan of God? You think that God looked down on you all this time and was watching. Listen, somebody knew where this boy was. Somebody knew that he was starving to death. Somebody knew it and they wrote it for our learning and our exhortation. And he knew he was without help, without hope, and as the Bible says, without God in this world. Ah, describing the Gentiles or those who would be thinking of this as the Apostle Paul as relating to the church of Christ can see the situation where we find ourselves in a lot of times as to the only one of our kind in a strange world. Think there was any Jews there to help him? You think he knew where the synagogue was in this place? You think if he'd have known it, would they have brought him in and entreated him as a brother? Would they have fed him? Might have known his daddy. Oh, he couldn't afford somebody to know his daddy in this situation, could he? You know, this old boy might have been next to some of his kinfolk and not even recognized or known him, but had he recognized or known him, he couldn't have afforded to let them know where he was because his daddy would find out. How would you like to be in his situation, to have been a servant of God, to have been a, a son, to have been one who was be, uh, given wealth and, and, and gold and silver and was promised, uh, you know, by his love for him, having received these things, that they were his and there was no strings attached. And this young boy goes off on his pride and his determination as a young man. I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to make it work. It's me, me, me. And then all this failure comes along. And you've lost all this weight, and you're dirty, and you're filthy, and you can't get a job anywhere but a swine pit. You mean to tell me you want your daddy to know this, who was a, a, an elder in Israel, who was a one of greatness and high standing amongst the children of God? You'd want your daddy, even if you were a place where you could have called on your friends, your daddy's people your cousins and uncles, would you have wanted them to know the situation that you're in? See, sin does a lot of things to you. Sin causes you to deny the best friends you ever have. If there's anything that we can learn from this lesson, that is the truth that is revealed in this story. All oh, the persons that you know the true, the tried, and the tested. You take a young man in a situation like this who had always been treated kindly by his parents, 
who had always known the love of his father and had made such an enormous mistake, instead of going back to the help that was true and tried and tested, had gone to another variable that was unknown. But friend, when it came down to life and death, when it came down to dying or eating, when it came to the fact that there was going to either be somebody to help him or he's just going to vanquish from this earth, those who had been supposedly his friends, those newfound counselors that had given him so much wisdom had left him at the uh, place of feeding the swine, walked off, left him high and dry, those who are his kinfolk that he would be ashamed to let him his daddy know when it got bad enough. And have you ever asked yourself this question? What have been the plight of this boy had it not gotten that bad? Would he have ever come to himself? What about the people who've never known of God's love? What about the children of God who have never reckoned that God is watching over them? What about the people who are going to try everything else but what God had proved to be as true, tried, and tested? The new counselors had gone their own way. The new friends had taken off. Couldn't tell my folk in that area because I didn't want them to know and my daddy to find out what a failure I was. Oh, sin had made this young man insane. Those rules and regulations that he'd always been taught and always understood and been reared by were not things that he now was using to govern his life. He was using other things. Because that's what his counselor had decided that he needed to do. Then, if he'd never known the love of God... That would have been one thing. If he'd have never known how God cared for him, that would have been another. But since he knew, since he had been taught, since he recognized the love of God, one more expression of the love of God could be to wake him up. And the way he woke him up was providentially by sending a famine. The Bible says, I'm going to read to you again. And there began to be a famine in the land. Had it not been for that famine, what would have happened to this man's son? Oh, there's a lot of times we get complaining and griping. Because things don't go our way, because we're not happy, because we don't have all the money we can spend, because we're not overjoyed by our condition and situation in this world. But if your heart is given to God and your trust and your confidence is in Jesus Christ, who else do you need to worry about if you're following him as he directs? And when God is providing, it may not be that we get what we want, but we'll get what we need. And sometimes what we need is not what we want. Here's a young man 
like a lot of us. Had men of wealth and fame and had a great deal of prosperity at his behest. He'd gone up to his daddy and said, hey, give me what's mine. I like this. There's so many parts of this thing that I could preach that it'd take us six years to get through with it. He said, you give me what's mine. Did he earn it? No. Was he owed it? No. I, I better not get to that part of the sermon. I'll just get off of it. But when he takes what's his, he goes into the country and he tries the new counselors and he tries all that new way of life and it blows up in his face. And when it blows up in his face, he's ashamed to talk to his friends, ashamed to talk to his cousins if they're in the area, ashamed to recognize what a failure is. You know, they always told me I was a dummy and a no good. And now I guess it's true. What was he going to do, just give up on life and die of starvation? No, the providence of God allowed him to see his insanity. And the Bible says, and you've got to repeat this to yourself in life almost every day. And he came to himself. I'm loved. I'm saved. And I'm happy. These events will cause you to change the way you handle any situation which you find yourself. And as a member of the body of Christ, God watching over you, providentially recognizing the circumstance and situation you find yourself in. Even if you were Saul of Tarsus on your knees praying for three days and three nights, had the anticipation in your heart and the knowledge in your mind to know that my Father is watching over me. He's coming to help me. There's help on the way. God loves me. Because he saved me from my sin through the blood of his son. And I will again be happy in the wondering and the wonderful hands of a great and beneficent creator. And he came to himself. Think of that all week long, I hope. Come back tonight as we study the word of God. Come to yourself if you're going to have to make a decision between a football game and a study of the scriptures. Let's come together. Learn again what the law of God teaches so that we can all be children of God. If you're here not a member of the church of Christ, Jesus teaches, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Will you come as we stand and sing? As we continue to grow the church and carry the legacy of Joe David Wilson, in this next segment, you will hear sermons from the current preachers here at the Port St. Lucie Church of Christ. Is it, is, did you start it? I started it. Okay, did you start the audio recording? Okay, it'll probably catch up. Good evening. Tonight I wanted to talk about the difference between worshiping God and worshiping idols. Now, a couple weeks ago, we were in Orlando, and we had an opportunity to listen to one of the other Church of Christ preachers that came in from Texas. And it was kind of interesting. One of the things that he said was, if you ever have a preacher come up and only quote one or two verses of Scripture throughout his whole entire sermon, get rid of that preacher. Because <laughs> obviously he's probably not teaching the truth. And with that, it was a very good lesson. It kind of made me think a little bit and wanted to go through and apply more verses of Scripture into my sermon as I go through and preach it. 
to help add an additional validation to it. Now, God typically first acts, and then he calls for a response. Think about that. When Christ went through and he sacrificed himself, he called for us to come forth, become baptized, in order to become saved. Now, a primary form of response is worship that we have. He's called on us to come through and worship him. In Christian worship, and serve God in response to what God had done acting in human history. Now, tonight I want to make an application by noting three distinctions between God and idols, and that are evident in the contrast of worshiping Jehovah God and also the worship of idols. Now, obviously, there is a distinction between worshiping God and worshiping idols. I hope everybody can see that. But Christians must realize that there is this distinction. Now, a failure to understand that distinction can, and often does, misdirect our worship and or the way we live our lives. Now, first, you must understand the contrast throughout the entire Bible is the contrast between Jehovah God and these idolatrous gods. The worlds of the Old Testament are worlds of idolatry. Now, Israel was often attracted to and caught up in the focus of those worlds. Now, every time Israel was caught, up, was caught up in idolatry, they forgot the contrast and they lost memory of who God was. Now, we as Christians must never forget the basic contrast in the Old Testament and the contrast between the living God and the God idols that were represented back then. Let's take a look at Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 through 4 that Rich read to us tonight. When Israel was... When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they called him, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. Yet it was I who who taught Ephraim to walk, took them in my arms, but not know that, and I healed them. I led them to cords of man with bonds of love, and I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws. And I bent down and fed them. And another scripture in Micah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Micah 6, 1 through 4. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead your case before mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you and also Aaron and Miriam. Now the world in the New Testament was a world of idolatry. The call of the New Testament is to see the living God in his, deceit, his deceit, distinctiveness. Sorry, To see him in contrast to gods represented by these idols. If we fail to see this contrast, if we lose memory of who God is, just like Israel, we're going to lose contact with God. Now the contrast here did not change. When God gave the gift of Jesus in his incarnation, his death and his resurrection... Now let's jump over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18. We'll start here. 
For the words of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Now where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debtor of this age? Has not God made foolish wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world thought the wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask the signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christian, but preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. <clears throat> now, second, you must understand that it's very fast, or sorry, it's very easy for us to lose sight in contrast because of the idols here of the 21st century. Now, America is quite different to the idols of the Bible worlds that we have today. Our idols exist in secular institutions and persist not religious temples dedicated to non-existent deities, while their idols represented those, uh, those non-existent gods they worshipped. Our idols usually exist in a secular forms and encourage us to worship ourselves. Our idols are greed, jealousy, self-indulgence, selfishness, pleasure, addictions, pride, arrogance, injustice, hate, anger, and such like. Our symbols of non-existent gods take forms like money, controlling power, drugs, used for pleasure, alcohol, abusive speech or acts, exploiting the weak, and such like things like this. Because we see idols only in a secular text, we often don't recognize them as spiritual forces. Now, I was going through and reading a magazine here. It's called Fast Company. It's all about business and everything else. And I found an interesting article in here. It was, basically, it was called The Selling of Souls. And it kind of got my attention a little bit to go through and read it. And its companies are employing quasi-religious tactics to inspire enthusiasm for their brands. But what happens when the customers have a crisis of faith? So it kind of got me thinking a little bit. Okay, well, what's going on here in this, in this marketing article? And I want to read a little excerpt out of here. So most of us don't think of ourselves susceptible to cults, right? We usually try to stay away from them once we recognize it. But at this point, billions of us have been drawn by some iteration of one. Nearly every major brand we interact with, which uses at least some sort of tactics that are, by design, cultish. Now, perfect example. Steve Jobs wasn't selling devices so much as an infinity. You know, uh, we know him as Apple, the Apple guy. To him, other Mac users, a vision of computing in the same way that a religious people feel connected to one another and a shared system of values. Now, there was a company that was called SoulCycle. What they basically did is they went through and they had a, it was basically a stationary bike that you can get on and interact through other people through the internet. So they built up this big, huge business. 
And as a result of it, they created this big, huge following as a result of it. And it was kind of interesting the way they, they worded this in here. So people will go to the soul cycle instructors for questions that they used to go to the pastors. Like, should I divorce my husband? Says Casper um, at the Harvard Divinity School, which is a religious school that was there. Now we co-authored a 2015 report titled, How We Gather. We looked at how brands like SoulCycle and CrossFit and others have replaced the role of traditional religious institutions, particularly among younger people who feel isolated in their digital lives. Now this is a problem. Now a recent study by the research firm found that one in five millennials believes they, they have no friends. A new report published by uh, an association showed that depression in 18 to 21-year-olds has climbed from more than 46% between 2009 and 2017. Now, over the past decade, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and others gained followers. However, churches, synagogues, and mosques are currently losing them. Now, attendance at regular religious services in America are at an all-time low, but religious alienation, it turns out, can be good for business. Ah, here's a problem. Now, studies show that SoulCycle has thrived by focusing on transforming customers' bodies and minds and encouraging them to express their brand allegiance through clothing, playlists, and more. Now, think about that. There's tangible items that are associated with this here. Now, the result is this cult-like type loyalty, which illustrates for both the depth of the participant commitment and the hope for these organizations to fulfill brand promises like find your soul, which is kind of interesting, right? You wouldn't think that a company would try to go through and try to bring you in and lure you in to where it would lure you away from church. Now, in the words of the Bible, people commonly associated the same attitudes with these type of idolatrous forces. Commonly, these characteristics of our secular gods were characterized of the religious gods. Where we make artificial distinctions between what we declare secular and spiritual, they did not make such distinctions. For them, the secular was merely an extension of the spiritual. Now, who here has heard of Airbnb, right? Where you go online, you book like a hotel that you rent temporarily, it's like somebody's house, it's like house sharing. Now, in the real world, Airbnb has embraced the quasi-religious approach to this type of brand building. Now, its global community uh, wrote a book called The Culting of Brands. Turn your customers into true believers, right? Now, it's akin to when businesses can learn from organizations such as the Unification Church. He cited this perfect example of the Unification Church's technique by hooking newcomers by what is called love bombing them and making them feel enveloped by love. Airbnb deploys this version of tactic by encouraging hosts to leave handwritten notes and cookies. That way they become love bombed. They come into it, they become a cult to be able to follow that product or that service. Now this evening I want you to consider three basic contrasts between the living God and these idols. It is in seeing the contrast that we understand another basic truth about the concept of biblical worship and the living God. Now, contrast number one. 
The living God acts in humanity history or human history before he calls for a response from these people. Now let me challenge you to consider these two illustrations here. The first is found in Exodus chapter 19 and 20 with Israel. Now Exodus chapter 19 verse 3 through 6 says, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall have to say of the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and now I bore you on eagles, eagle wings, and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are words that you shall speak to Israel or to the sons of Israel. Now this statement just occurs just before God spoke to the Mount Sinai and gave Israel these Ten Commandments. Now why did he do this? Why did God make Exodus chapter 19 statement before and then give the Ten Commandments to Israel in Exodus chapter 20? Now remember Exodus the exodus from Egypt was history, and God delivered Israel. Now remember the crossing of the Red Sea was history, and God delivered Israel. Remember the nurturing and preservation deeds in the wilderness were history, and God delivered Israel. Now God declared Exodus 19, 3-6 that we just read to remind them that Israel had a reason to respond to him based upon these historical events. Now note, it is their choice to see and to respond to what God did. Now we also need to note that they had a reason to respond positively to God because of this. He had already acted in delivering them from Egypt. He had already done this for them. He asked them to respond on the basis of what he did for them. Now the same emphasis is seen also in the New Testament here. In explaining the concepts of righteousness and justification and through faith in Jesus Christ, Paul wrote these words in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. For while we are still helpless, at the right time of Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for the righteous man. Through perhaps for the good of someone would die even dare to even die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now think about that. Before we were righteous, God acted on our behalf. While we were helpless, God also acted on our behalf. And while we were sinners, God still acted on our behalf. Now God intervened in human history for our benefit. Now how? He sent Jesus. He permitted Jesus' death for our sins, and he raised Jesus from the dead. Our worship and our service is in response to what God had already done. God acted for our benefit. We responded to his action. And the first contrast between the living God and his idols is that God acted in the history for our benefit before he asked us to respond to him. Now, contrast number two. The living God cares and expresses his caring idolatry 
or is caring. Idolatry commonly was based on fate. Now, you hear, ever hear somebody say that? Oh, it's just my fate. It's just something that's going to happen, right? Well, just hold that in the back of your mind for a second. Now, the concept of fate in regard to the action of idolatry gods is a concept of inattentiveness and unconcern, a general disinterest. Idolat- uh, idols usually don't care about people that are worshiping them. Now, in this view, this basic view, you know, they think, hey, what's going to happen will happen, good or bad. Thus if, thus, if something good were to happen, the God smiled on you for whatever reason. If something bad happened to you, it was going to happen and you just couldn't prevent it. Your behavior or decisions had nothing to do with the outcome and fate determined your outcome, right? Now, to me, one of the best revealing attitudes uh, common to the Baal gods in the region of Canaan is declared in Elijah's contest or contest with the prophets of Baal and Mount Carmel in 1 Kings chapter 18. Let's jump over to 1 Kings 18, verses 25. So Elijah and the prophet of Baal chose one ox for yourself and prepared it, prepared it first, for you are many, and called the name of the God and put no fire under it. And they took the ox which was given to them and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they leapt about the altar, which they made. And it came at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he is a god. Either he's occupied or he's just gone aside. Or he's maybe on a journey. Or perhaps he's asleep and needs to be awakened. So they cried with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. When midday passed, they raved until the time of offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice. No one answered, and no one paid attention. Now, the ten tribes of northern Israel rarely worshipped God, but frequently worshipped Baal, their idol. Elijah wanted them to return to God and completely abandon Baal. His purpose of a contest of a sacrificial worship, listen to the words of Elijah when the prophet of Baal received no response from their God. He is a God. Obviously, this God was disinterested. Use a louder voice, he said, until you do not, you do not have his attention. He's occupied. You are not his priority, obviously. And he's gone somewhere else. He's too removed to even hear you or even listen to you. He's asleep and you need to wake him up. He has no conscience of you. Gods are inattentive to human concerns, even if humans seek to worship them, like Baal. If you enjoyed today's sermon, read our regularly updated blog for insightful articles by visiting us online at pslchurchofchrist.com. If you would like to watch previous sermons, they can be viewed on our YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash pslchurchofchrist. Connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PSL Church of Christ. Or if you prefer to visit us in person to learn more on Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. as well as Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. And you can visit us at 384 East Midway Road next to Walgreens. See you next week.